Lord God, you inspired your servant Paul to write these words, and we ask that tonight we may so reflect on them that we gain insight, not for the sake of minds alone, but for the sake of lives that bear effective witness to Jesus Christ in our world. For we ask it in his name. Amen. If you've been here in the last couple of weeks, you'll have heard of the situation facing Paul and Timothy as this letter opens. Paul is in a Roman prison, having heard that so much of his work in the end proved fruitless. He says, just before we started our reading this uh, this evening, everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Timothy is Paul's young helper, and he is in the city of Ephesus, which is in Asia. We call it Turkey now. It's the place where Paul left him before Paul's own arrest with the mission of sorting out the church there. And it's all going horribly wrong. Timothy is really nothing special. He is despised for his youth. He's never fit. He's timid. And things left in his charge are going wrong. And so it's not surprising that Paul says to him, Be strong. Oh, look, a flying pig. Well, that is as likely as it is that Timothy would become strong just because Paul says to him, be strong. How often has someone said something to you when you're down in the dumps and made it worse by saying something like, snap out of it, sort out your problems, pull yourself out of it by your own bootstraps? So we have to pay attention tonight to what Paul actually says. Because what he says is so different from simply saying, to his young helper, who would be feeling all these pressures. Timothy, be strong. And everything in front of us tonight tells us what it means when Paul says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. It's not going to be easy, but it is the answer that Timothy needs. And when we feel in any of the places that Timothy finds himself, and we sometimes find ourselves there in reality as he did, not just as a feeling, then the answer is not going to be our own bootstraps, but the grace of Jesus Christ. And so let's head in. Everyone has deserted me, Paul says in chapter 1 and verse 15. They couldn't take the need to be faithful, to hold their course. So in verse 1, by contrast, he says, you then, my son, not like the others, but you, be strong. Don't be like them, but be strong. Not a, not a stiff upper lip English kind of strength, but a strength in Jesus Christ. And what we have to read this evening tells us what that looks like. It's page 1195 if you closed your Bibles. 
Firstly, it's a strong confidence in the teaching of the gospel. Paul reviews how what is needed is very different from so much of what is on offer from those others around who are teaching a false message. So verse 2, what you heard me say, Timothy, you heard me say with many witnesses present. Now we need just to step up and kind of do a little kind of aside. Because it is worth knowing some of this stuff. There was this particular kind of family of false messages around in the ancient world. Some of it actually before Christ, some of it uh, during and some after. That we call Gnosticism. And it's a really annoying word because it begins with a G. We call it Gnosticism. So at least now, if you come across that word, um, you don't have to go gn-gn-gn. It's Gnosticism, like a gnu. There were echoes of Christian things. No, someone's just remembered that Flanders and Swan song, haven't you? I've just remembered it. No, not a gnu, a nu. No, no. There were, there, were, there were echoes of Christian things. But it was very spiritual. It was very religious. It despised the body. And in some cases, that le- meant that uh, all the body things that we prayed about, uh, as uh, Mark led us, all the body things like alcohol and sex, they were despised. In other cases, it led to a sense of it doesn't matter what you do with those things, so hey. And it focused, and this is the point for us tonight, it focused on private handing on of secret things that would admit the believer into the mystery of the religion in question. It gave you the deep satisfaction of going out from the gathering of believers into a world where only you knew the answers. Not so with Christ. Not so with Paul. What I had to say, he says, I said in front of lots of people, and you heard it, Timothy, now pass it on in the same way. Entrust the message to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Verse 2 again. None of this whispering in corners stuff Choose good people, give them the message, let them pass it on. What, um, what would you say was the point of evangelism, of mission? What is the ambition that you would have if you were an evangelist? If you were stood up here now facing a crowd of uh, unbelievers, and uh, you, what, was, what would be your ambition? Well, I wonder if it would surprise you to know that Billy Graham, the great evangelist, always said that the point of evangelism was not to turn unbelievers into believers, but rather to turn unbelievers into the kind of believers who would turn unbelievers into believers. The point of evangelism was not to make people Christian, but to make them capable of evangelism. One of the tests of the gospel in your mouth and mine is this. Does it impact people with the sense that it's not just for them, but it has a dynamic, a rolling movement that must be passed on? So teach it. And appoint people who will teach it to others. And then secondly, after the teaching, we come to the business of suffering. Suffering. 
Verse 3, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Look at verse, uh, sorry, at uh, chapter 1 and verse 8 for a moment. Uh, and you'll see that it says, a couple of lines in, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. Now, I have no idea why the translators of this version took exactly the same phrase and did something completely different with it in chapter 2. Endure hardship is, is exactly the same phrase as join with me in suffering. Like a good soldier of Christ. And then what unfolds is three images. Pictures that open up this notion of suffering. And they're actually pointing to slightly different emphases that Paul wants to reach. First, a military picture. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. There needs to be a ruthless focus, if you are a soldier, on the ambition of your mission. You can't afford to get distracted. You have to keep with your mission imperative. What am I here to do? That's what I'm here for. That will please my boss. That's what I'm going to do. You cannot afford to be distracted. And therefore, that will bring sometimes the suffering of realizing that there are lots of things you could do but you can't afford to do those. You must just do the one thing. Then a different image. Verse 5, similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. What on earth would the rules be for an evangelist, for a teacher of the gospel? Well, the athlete doesn't, obviously, the athlete doesn't get the victor's crown. We know it more than ever in our own generation because of drug testing and all the rest of it. That The athlete will not get the gold medal unless he or she competes according to the rules. But what are the rules for teaching the gospel? Well, within the point that Paul is making, it can only be this. You will only succeed in teaching the gospel if you recognize that the gospel teaching that you're undertaking brings with it as a kind of, almost a law of nature, a law of supernature, that there will be suffering. You can't expect to escape from that kind of basic given about the business of teaching the gospel. It will bring suffering. The soldier, keep focused. The athlete, accept this kind of principle that it's going to bring suffering. And then, uh, verse 6, the hard-working farmer. None of the thrill of the military. None of the triumph of the athlete. Just the simple plodding in February. Or whenever. No great glossy prizes come your way. But at the end of the slogging, the farmer does get the crop. And for an evangelist, a teacher of the gospel, what does that mean? It means that after you have put in the effort, there will be a result. It may not be the harvest you expect. And Christian history is full of stories of those who 
evangelized a region and appeared to have no success. But in the 10 years after they left, there was all kind of memory of what had been said and the gospel flourished in new ways. So it may not be what you thought of, but as the farmer is rewarded with a harvest, so the teacher of the gospel is going to be rewarded. There will be conversion. For the soldier, for the athlete, and for the farmer, in each case there's a life of hardship, even suffering. It's never undertaken in order to suffer, but it's always for the benefit of the service that's offered. For the soldier, it's victory. For the athlete, it's triumph. And for the farmer, it's a crop. Join with me in suffering, says Paul. Not, let's be clear about this, not aiming at suffering, but recognizing that suffering is part of the package of what's involved in the gospel. So it's worth emphasizing that this is not about, principally about suffering. It doesn't validate all suffering. Some of you will be of a generation, you might be able to help me. I couldn't remember where this comes from. What was the radio broadcasts in which a woman used to appear and say with a particularly glum voice, it's only being so cheerful as keeps me going. It was Itmar. I wondered if it was Itmar. Wartime? Wartime? Wartime and after. Thank you. And there isn't, this is not about a kind of martyred approach to life, in which we say it's only says, being so cheerful as keeps me going for Jesus. It's not that kind of business. But it speaks to the suffering that comes because we are faithful in maintaining the good news of Jesus in the world around. And so, verse 7, Paul says, reflect on this, Timothy. Listen up. Attend, consider. I'm saying these things and I'm an apostle. This is worth reflecting on. And that takes us into a kind of third theme in these verses. It's here particularly, but it's elsewhere too. Make the effort. It's not for nothing he says reflect. He doesn't mean, I'll give this a moment's thought. He means, give it your attention. Work. Strive. There's no doctrine here that says Christian stuff comes easily. We live in times when there are voices that say everything about the Christian life is gentle, that we always run easily with the flow of life towards God. But Paul doesn't say that. My favorite, um, I've got quite a few contenders, but my favorite awful Christian song is... I think it comes from the 1980s, Uh, Sue will be able to tell me in a minute, Um, that said, do not strive, do not strive. Was it 1980s, do you reckon? Yeah. But striving is precisely what Paul is about. And we mustn't argue that because he was an apostle, because of his vision, or because of his gifts from the Holy Spirit, he somehow just waltzed through a gospel ministry. It cost him blood, sweat, and tears. It cost him his life, as he more than once records. He worked. And it's not surprising if it's exactly the same for us. We give thanks to God for his gifts. We praise him for the convictions out of which 
our life can flow. But it doesn't necessarily make it easy. We work. So let me ask you, where do you work at the Christian life? Is it in study? Paul says, reflect on what I'm saying. You know, this stuff bears reflecting on. Seriously. Not just a couple of minutes before you close your eyes. Is it in conversations with people that somehow demand effort from you if you're ever to get them to understand what this gospel good news thing is? Is it in prayer? Is it in a practical striving to be holier today than yesterday? Don't let anyone tell you that it's not to be worked on or it shouldn't feel like work. On the contrary, here in these this letter. Here is your testimony that that's exactly what it should feel like. Reflect on what I'm saying. Consider, study, pay attention, and it will be rewarded with insight. And now in a few verses, from verse 8, Paul opens up his conviction that suffering, even though we don't seek it, is the pattern for all Christian work. It was the pattern for Jesus's, it's the pattern for his own, and it's the pattern for ours. Suffering leading to blessing. That is the norm, the pattern. So, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, sorry, raised from the dead, descended from David. God has been faithful. Faithful to his ancient promises through his people, the Jews, descended from David. He's kept those promises. Jesus, you know the life he lived. You know the death he died. And in him, God was being faithful to his promises all along. Jesus was himself faithful. Despite the cross that was his suffering, he was raised from the dead. Suffering leading to blessing. God has been faithful. Jesus was faithful in a life pattern that had suffering that led to blessing. And then, uh, this is my gospel, that's what I'm telling uh, everyone, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. My suffering leads to their glory. I'm a criminal in chains, but the gospel isn't chained. And my suffering is the demonstration to those who are yet, as yet unconvinced that if I'm going to do this for the sake of my teaching, then this teaching is worth taking seriously. It's not glib, it's not slick. I am in prison for this stuff. Therefore, an unbelieving world has to take it seriously, and from that unbelieving world we find those who are chosen by God who enter into eternal glory because they took him seriously, and they took him seriously because of his suffering. And then the same is true for you. And he opens that up in these last verses. But before we do into those, get into those, I just want to kind of do a bit of a summary. Teach the gospel, says St. Paul. Work for it. Don't be surprised that you suffer for it. Teach, work, suffer. Some of you are probably wearing an armband that says WWJD. That's a good thing. What would Jesus do? and any given set of circumstances. But you wouldn't want to be the entrepreneur 
as a Christian who produced a set of arm brands with TWS on it. Teach, work, suffer. You wouldn't make much money from that. And where for you is a surprise in teach, work, suffer? I'll tell you where it is for me. It's in teaching more than anything else. But it may be somewhere else for you and that's okay. But let me just kind of run through the surprises because there are temptations in each of those. And those temptations are alive and well, not just in the world, but in our churches. Teach it. Because the temptation will come your way that it's enough to be nice. Now, there are all kinds of ways of being Christian in your workplace. But I, uh, I, I was reminded by someone who was doing the network course uh, on Monday last uh, of, of someone, in our, someone else in our church who struggles because in their workplace they're known as Mr. Nice Guy. And how does he move from saying, yeah, I, I, I know I'm nice, but that's not what it's about. The temptation will be that it's enough to be nice. He knows it's not. And thank God for those ministries in which there's a great deal more than niceness going on. There is real sacrifice. Uh, and it's clear, and it demands an explanation. But we must have the explanation to hand. Teach it. Because the pressure will always be on. The world will be delighted with us if we are nice. But they will not be delighted with us, and they will put us to suffering when we say, do you know the reason I'm nice? It's because Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, and you need to submit to him. I don't necessarily put it like that, but that's the message. So teach it. Work for it. Because the pressure will be on, and it's not always from the world, it can be inside the churches, to coast through a Christian life. To think that it's a kind of joyride until glory comes. But it isn't. Suffer for it. Because many will say that suffering is only far away in other places, or that the joy of the gospel means sidestepping suffering, or that Jesus suffered for us so that we don't have to. No. Listen to Paul. Reflect. Get the insight. This, it is the shape of the normal life lived out in the following of Jesus. It was true for Jesus. It was true for Paul. And at the very end now, we come to the confirmation that it's true for us. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's the good news. If we die to ourselves, if we accept the teaching load, the working... And don't, don't get too exalted a notion of teaching, by the way. It's just the business of speaking. If we accept the teaching load, if we accept the work, and we accept that suffering will come with it, then we are dying to ourselves, and we will then live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. Same point. More negatively, if we disown him, he'll disown us. If we're faithless, he'll remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And wouldn't it be lovely if that last bit of verse 13 meant, if we are faithless, don't worry, because he's going to be faithful anyway. He can't deny himself, so you're going to be okay. It can't mean that. Not what the context demands it means. What would be the point of this very kind of poetic uh, doubling up of phrases if at the last point Paul pu pulled the punch? It's not what it means. It means you can be faithless, but he can't be. 
He must remain faithful to what he's set out as the way the gospel works. And the way the gospel works includes the demand that we are faithful. So if you are faithless, he will keep faith with himself. And you will find that you are disowned. His faithfulness means that we are separated because he will be faithful to his own character. So don't take a false comfort from that second half of verse 13. Some here, as we conclude, have endured for many, many years. Um, Comparisons are, well, it's not comparisons, but illustrations can be invidious. But because some of you may not know people in our congregation, let me say, have a word sometime after a service with Joe Dade sitting over here. And hear the stories he has to tell of life uh, playing music in the music halls and the life that was part of that life then and what it's cost him to maintain a faithful witness to Jesus Christ since his conversion. Many years ago, Joe won't mind my saying that he's not in the first flush and prime of youth. Good. At the other end, go and talk to uh, Julian uh, at the back with the big hair. Uh, Just setting out on a life of endurance, knowing what it's like to work with elite sports teams in a life that's very rarely naturally accommodating to the gospel. And there are lots of other illustrations. But I choose those two because some have endured for many years and others are setting out on a life of endurance. Reflect on what Paul says and remember Jesus Christ. Teach him. Work for him. If necessary, suffer for him. Because the reward is to reign. The reward is to reign with that same Jesus Christ in glory forever. And any cost has to be worth it. Can we pray? Breathe on me, breath of God, until my heart is pure, until my will is one with yours to do and to endure. Amen.